Good evening. Uh, I'm Ali Abrahimi, and I'm delighted to welcome you to the LSE. I should mention that this event is being recorded as a podcast, and that our speaker will be signing copies of his book after the lecture. Copies will also be on sale immediately outside. Tonight, we are joined by the distinguished journalist Jason Beck, a foreign correspondent for The Guardian and The Observer for 15 years. Jason scarcely needs an introduction. As most of us know, he's reported on many of the key events in the Middle East and South Asia. He's the author of two widely praised books, Al-Qaeda and On the Road to Kandahar, and his latest book, The 9-11 Wars, has just been published by Alan Lane. Jason is, in the words used by uh, Adam Roberts a few days ago at the British Academy, a high-class journalist. His journalistic accounts are unfailingly suffused with sophisticated analyses, winning him a wide international readership and making him one of the most reliable sources for scholars working on the regions he's covered. Indeed, the arguments subtly underpinning his latest book make as lasting and as valuable a contribution as the staggeringly detailed and often overwhelming chronicles of the human stories behind the war on terror and associated conflicts. Jason will speak for about uh, 40 minutes or 30 minutes on the 9-11 wars, after which there will be a chance to pose questions to him. So, Jason, the floor is yours. Thank you, Alia. Um, thank you, everybody, for coming. Um, what, I, what I'll do is run through a few of the broad arguments that I look at in um, my, the, the recently published book, many of which are, in a way, updating or further working arguments and ideas that I was looking at in my early um, earlier book and um, the way I work is I, I am a journalist I'm a reporter um, Alia in a very flattering manner credited me with a, uh, some kind of analysis that is of interest that for, for me always comes later in terms of how I work uh, as a reporter you, you work in the anecdotal basically to start with you are on the ground meeting people selected fairly randomly but in no way scientifically seeing things in an equally unscientific way and what I tend to do is look, go through the anecdotes or start hearing all these anecdotes start hearing all these stories, meeting all these people and then go to the scholars if you like or the more empirical, broader stuff to see if there's some Resonance as some depth in what I'm seeing, what's happening between the anecdotes to the anecdotes themselves, these individual cases, mean something greater. So what I'll do as I'm talking is mention some of the bigger ideas, which I, they're suggestions. I think we're much too close to the events of the last decade to see it in any, with any real clarity, though we can now see more of the lines of the conflicts, if you like, the form, the narrative, the qualities of the conflicts that have occurred in the last 10 years in a, a much more, a much clearer way. Um, but I'll also use some of the anecdotal material, if you like, to illustrate some of the points I'm making. Um, 
About 13 years ago, I was, uh, a bit more than 13 years ago, I was a young freelance reporter in my late 20s on a hill just north of Kabul, about 20, 30 miles north of Kabul, looking down on the Shamali Plains, which are a fertile area just under the fabled Hindu Kush or the spur of the Hindu Kush that lies north of Kabul. I was in a Taliban position with some Taliban fighters looking down on Bagram Airport, the Soviet-built air, built airstrip, down on the Shamali, where there were a few of Ahmed Shah Massoud's troops, the late guerrilla leader, uh, his troops, and a kind of rough front line, or no man's land in between the, the two of us. Um, I learned various things that morning. Um, one was that when reporters turn up on, in frontline positions, bored soldiers quite often fire in the other outgoing. Now, that, you know, certain ethical issues there, but leaving those aside, there's certain practical ones as well, because when they fire that way, the people down there tend to fire back. And it was my first experience of this, and it was extremely worrying when I when it all started coming back the other way. Though that wasn't the main reason for mentioning that, but as I was up there looking down with these Taliban fighters who were relatively, um, who were very friendly actually, um, I was confused, I was interested to see that the Taliban fighters I was with were Hazara, they were from the Hazara minority in uh, Afghanistan who are Shia on the whole and um, almost exclusively and uh, not only um, Shia, but they had been persecuted quite significantly by the Taliban over previous years. So I was trying to work out, why am I sitting up here? Why are these guys, these Taliban fighters, serving me grapes and tea and firing the odd shell from an ancient Soviet-built tank down there, when they are... Uh, everything I've read up to this point tells me that these people should be on the other side. So I asked the local commander, who went into this long, very Afghan explanation about how whose commander was whose commander, who came from whose village, who came from where, whose brother was whoever's brother, and it all went back to etc., etc. And for him, it was totally logical. And it was at that point that I suddenly started to realise that many of the big narratives, the, 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 the global explanations that are imposed from outside on conflicts on the ground very, very often break down. Uh, and that is one of the key themes. I don't think it's doing that, but I'm going to get rid of it anyway because um, it's buzzing. Um, the no, somebody else's. Never mind. Um, the um, and and that's that's uh, conflict tension, if you like, between global both global narratives, global explanations, and global ideologies, and uh, local detail and. The, the, the sheer stubbornness, the resistance of local identities, community identities and such like is at the heart of, I think, the, many of the, or the evolution of the conflicts we've seen in the last 10 years. And it's certainly something I, I, that uh, provided the, one of the main arguments in, this, in the book I've just done. Um, so that's one element I'd, to bear in mind as I, as I talk. Um, that was 1998 and I was sitting up there looking down on 
Bagram, the, the airstrip. The airstrip was completely ruined. There were a couple of bombed out buildings, a few bombed out, totally useless uh, old MiGs, and as I say, a couple of uh, Massoud's resistance fighters. Three years later, um, four years later, sorry, just under four years later, I was back in exactly the same position on the top of this ridge, looking down on, on the Shamali. May, April, May 2002, situation completely changed clearly. Taliban had gone. And down on the plains around Bagram, there was an extraordinary scene of the uh, 10th Mountain Division and I think the 101st Airborne, if I remember rightly, setting up what was uh, to be their, the major base for the American presence, Operation Enduring Freedom, uh, in Afghanistan. And the, the, looking down at it, I was asking the classic journalist question, just, what, what is happening here? What the hell is going on? What is this about? And I, mean, I was utterly bewildered by it, having been running around Afghanistan on and off for two or three years. The sight of all this hardware, these ranks of helicopters, artillery pieces, whatever, was, was genuinely shocking. And that was, to me, uh, what the Afghans thought of it um, well, I spoke to them about it, and most of the people up there were, would, were remembering immediately the Soviet experience, uh, but were still utterly bewildered as to what this was all about. Um, and I think a decade later, something of what that was all about is, is as I say, clearer. Um, one interesting question, looking at the last decade, is are we talking about one war or many? Is there some kind of historic unity to all these various, very diverse, multiple conflicts we've seen over the last 10 years, many of which evidently predated the actual attack, the event of 9-11, others which have been energised or catalysed by it, or the reaction to 9-11, still more that have emerged afterwards. What is it that, does, it, does anything bind them together? Is it one conflict? Can you talk about, as I do in the book, not the 9-11 wars, or is that simply another global construct that we should jettison with the others? And I think you can talk about something that is one phenomenon in a sense, because certainly as the conflict went on, I, on the ground as well as from afar, you could see many of many common factors emerging. Now, they might be as banal as the same people. So you had someone like General David Petraeus, who was present in almost all the main theatres from 03 onwards, and played a key role in 05-06, uh, in terms of in, in doctrinally. Um, you have the nature of the conflict, the chaotic form of, the, of, of combat, the lack of front lines, the clearly indistinct division between combatants and non-combatants. You have language, there were words that we were hearing on the ground that were being imported from one theatre to another. And then you have quite interesting new features in a way, such as the use of the image, partly driven by technology, clearly digital technology. But very, yes, of course, image has always been extremely useful, potent, present in conflict, uh, but very rarely images actually fabricated, manufactured by protagonists, which we saw, we've seen in the last five to ten years, where, from actually from very early on, from ten years ago, where soldiers 
all militants actually are using equipment themselves to take or to create images of what they're doing at a given time and those images themselves then go on to have a very significant impact which is something new uh, and something that I think is one of those one of those qualities or elements that bind together in some ways this very diver otherwise very diverse set of conflicts. Um, I think now, after 10 years, certainly as a reporter, having reported the whole thing, well, much of it, um, it feels that there's a... Um, uh, you can see something of a narrative in terms of when the most intense moments were where we've got to now. I think it goes from the, the spectacular event and the intensity of that first few months post 9-11, uh, an event which, as I say, catalyzed a whole series of clear factors beforehand and so forth. Can I just stop you there and ask anyone with their phone on to turn off? Can we get in this buzz that's... Okay. Um, a phone turning off, pause. <laughs> All right, okay. Um, you, you have 9-11 catalyzing all these previous developments. You then have a sort of phony war for 15 months, which I can remember quite clearly, where there was a lot of anxiety, but people did suddenly think, or start to think, hold on, you know, the apocalypse hasn't quite happened. The, the worst of the predictions that were made on 9-11 or immediately after 9-11 haven't come to pass. Uh, it's not looking as bad as all that. Then you have a period of really very significant intensity in terms of violence through from 03 and the invasion of Iraq through to about 06, 05, 06. Um, and then things start to get slightly better. Uh, I can remember very clearly the sort of being in London, 05. I'm sure many of you can. That genuine sense that we were on the brink of a global conflagration, that, 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 that Iraq was going to hell in a handcart, that Afghanistan and Pakistan were getting worse, that there were bombs in much of Europe, uh, or parts of Europe, there was a, apparently a significant risk of radicalization of very large numbers of people, so on and so forth. Now that wasn't actually true at the time, but it certainly felt like it. Um, there was a significant amount of violence, but already you could see the, the riptide, if you like. You could already see things turning, um, which led us through to the fragile improvement in, with certain qualifications that we've seen in the last few years. And I, I just want to unpick a couple of those, two or three of those episodes, because I think they're interesting and they're worth, worth, worth looking at. Um, one is the French riots. Now, uh, you'll remember them, I'm sure, no... October, November 2005, um, I'd actually done seven straight years of largely conflict reporting, um, not just in Afghanistan and Pakistan, but elsewhere in Africa and in, in the Middle East, the Al-Aqsa Intifada and various other things. And I, by 2005, was completely sort of burnt out and asked my office if I could go for a nice sort of sabbatical year in Paris reporting, <laughs> you can see where this is going, reporting, you know, sort of arguments between Beaujolais manufacturers or something. Uh, and I walked straight into, I got there in September, I did the Gaza withdrawal, the, the settlers out of Gaza in August of 2005, and then, um, and, and then arrived in 
in Paris just in time for the banlieue to go up in smoke in what was called, and this is my point, what was called a Muslim intifada by Melanie Phillips and various other right-wing commentators. And it was, and indeed my own newspaper, The Observer, um, headlined, having not read my piece, actually headlined the piece, something about Muslim, up, France's Muslims rebel. And so I rang up my editor and shouted at it. Um, but the... the uh, the point about the French riots was really interesting. Which it was depicted as this sort of culmination of the radicalised and mobilisation. It was framed within um, a violent... A, 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 it was framed within the narrative of West versus East, Islam versus non-Islam, so on and so forth. Uh, on the ground, there was absolutely no evidence to back that up. Um, out on it for three, four weeks covering the riots. There was not one religious slogan. There was not one religious uh, target. The targets were the schools, largely, that were being burnt, certainly no places of worship. Uh, speaking to the rioters, um, there was only... The, the main slogan was that hardy perennial of urban violence, fuck the police, which is slightly tedious, but gives an indication of quite the level of politicisation of... The, the youth who were largely who were throwing rocks at the, CR, uh, the CRS, the French riot police, itself sort of classic traditional Gallic pastime in many ways. But, um, <laughs> it is. It's a very interesting point about integration, actually, that trying to be more French than the French by lobbing rocks and actually chanting CRSS, the, um, say, RSS, i.e. the old 1968 slogan of equating the CRS, the riot police, with the SS, which I, I, I don't think actually anyone throwing the rocks out in, or petrol bombs out in Lac-en-Herve or the other um, big estates, housing projects actually recognised as a historical reference, but they did recognise the reference to a long tradition of street violence, political street violence and protest in France. Anyway, that's an aside. The, the point being that it was not a religious conflict. If it had been, and clearly we would have been in a lot of trouble because it would have meant that uh, for the first time Al-Qaedaism had, had gone mass, if you like. It wasn't. And that, I think, was one of the clues. It came out later. Everyone was too hysterical at the time to actually see it, but that was a clue as to where things were going. Um, another one also occurs, end of 2005, you have the double bombing of hotels in Amman, in Jordan. 58, 60 uh, people killed. At wedding parties hit. Um, now, the, there's a lot of very good polling before the poll, before the bombing of in, in Amman and afterwards. And you're looking at basic approval rates for Bin Laden, Al Qaeda, the methodology of Al Qaeda, suicide bombing, and so forth. And Jordan's a bit odd because of its proximity to the Palestinian, uh, Israel Palestine, and also the Palestinian population. But nonetheless, you're looking at 60 to 80 percent, or you were looking at 60 to 80 percent. Um, approval ratings afterwards, after the bombing, 12, 15, and it stayed at that level. And I was, I was fascinated by this. I was going in and out of Iraq at the time, talking to people, and you could almost feel it happening. You could certainly see it happening in Jordan. There were big demonstrations. Um, the uh, tribe, the Al Khaleli, the tribe of um, uh, Abu Musab al Zakawi, who was the militant who'd actually commissioned and organised and claimed the attacks, disowned him publicly. And there was this very strong reaction. And with a little bit of distance, you can look back and see how in every country over that period, 
uh, Morocco, Egypt, Turkey, Iraq, I'll come to in a minute, Jordan, going on right across to the Far East. Saudi is a very good example. The moment the violence came home, the moment the, violence, the bomb started going off on streets in Riyadh, in, uh, it was actually in Sinai, but, um, or the Red Sea ports in Egypt, in Casablanca, then the local, in Istanbul, then the local opinion turned immediately and the historic highs that had been reached in terms of support for groups like Al-Qaeda just fell away right down to very low levels. Anti-Americanism remained high but the support for the militants remained low and that was happening at the same time in Iraq which is where I was working quite a lot and in 0405. Now the welcome for the foreigners as it were in as they were dubbed um, by the Americans largely, um, who didn't count as foreigners in Iraq, but anyway, um, apparently. The, the foreign militants in Iraq didn't get an, a, a, an unconditional welcome anyway to start with. It was always conditional. And I remember talking to a guy who was working in the Ministry of Oil, I think, Sunni, who called himself Abu Mujahed when I interviewed him at length in the summer of 2004 who I put, we had a long conversation about how he'd formed his group and who was in it and he used to mortar American, the green zone or set IEDs for uh, American convoys in and around Baghdad and then go to work at nine o'clock, which makes it an interesting commute but he was um, <laughs> he did, he, he was actually, it was amazing and it, it, it just, I'll come back to him because he, he really sums up quite a lot of what I I believe is the nature of, of all terrorism in many ways, but certainly modern Islamic militancy. But um, he, uh, when I said to him, you know, do you work with or what do you think of Al-Qaeda? He said, uh, terrorists, you know, they are bloody people, was the translation. Um, we, we don't, we don't, they're bloodthirsty, we don't have anything to do with them, they're terrorists, they're, they're not from around here. Uh, and that was early, that was 2004. Now by 2006-07, obviously, that sentiment was very widespread. Now, the, 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 the tribes of Anbar, Western Iraq, the many of the Sunni communities elsewhere uh, had clearly categorically rejected the global package or the package of universally, universal values systems that had been imposed slash offered by Washington um, and London to a certain extent or the West let's say uh, but they also subsequently rejected and this I think is key that which was being offered by Bin Laden and his affiliates, followers, others within major thinkers of modern radical Islam, which to my mind is as uh, disrespectful or respects as little local difference, local specificity as anything that has come out of the West. And I think that's absolutely critical. I don't think, as has been said, modern uh, Islamic radicalism is a, res is a response to globalisation or a certain resistance to globalisation. I think in many ways it's another form of globalisation. Um, certainly one that is equally disrespectful of local communities, their identities and their wishes. And I saw that very in, in Anbar when you had Sunni sheikhs who were extremely irritated to see uh, electricians from Baghdad becoming quite senior commanders 
And this was just, it overturned the social hierarchies, it challenged their own prestige and, and their own values, and was not what they saw as uh, progress. Then there were the cultural elements and banning of cigarettes and, and you know, Egyptian soap operas and all this sort of thing, which uh, was bound to cause problems and there were issues with women and so on and so forth. But you see, in that crucial period of 0506, for me, you see, at a whole range of different levels, you see the resistance of, the, of, of local communities to global, global narratives, global ideologies. It's that... It's that bloody-minded local particularism, parochialism even, that I think is critical. Now, the, how that, uh, that... That's still on quite a large level. And if you kind of drill down to the, to the militants themselves, the, 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 um, those actually involved in, in the activism, the violent activism, uh, all, the, all those I've interviewed, and I've interviewed a fair, a fair number, both of the Taliban, Mahdi army types, um, and of the, uh, the, the, the Al-Qaeda, or the suicide bombers anyway. The, the Al-Qaeda people I used to speak to, but after 2001 it got very difficult. After 2002, 2003 it got extremely difficult. Same with Taliban. Uh, Al-Mahdi army in Iraq, we, you could still spend quite a lot of time with up until 05. But their language is always deeply local. So a few examples. Um, I remember uh, a Pakistani guy, a son of a yeah, very young guy, from a, a baker's son from Bahawalpur, who had been groomed, basically, to be a suicide bomber in uh, Pakistan, and he he's, he decided against. Uh, he was groomed in Pakistan, and he was sent over the border to hit an American base. And when he got there, in his truck, stuffed with explosives, he was sent over uh, in over the border from Waziristan. He found that there was he couldn't see any Americans. He could just see local Afghans, and more significantly. Uh, people who he thought were f possibly from his neck of the woods in Bahawalpur. Uh, and at this point he said to me he, couldn't, he didn't want to go ahead with, any, with, the, with the bombing and he just sat there sort of frozen in his truck uh, and waiting for them and the Afghan police actually came and got him. And that interested me because I heard exactly the same, well, a variation from a guy called Didar who I'd uh, interviewed in Iraq in 2002 who was explaining why he too had decided at the last minute not to flick the switch. And that was because he'd arrived actually amongst a group of policemen in northern Iraq um, and had decided against uh, killing, decided he didn't want to kill himself and them when he heard their local accents, which were the accents of his hometown. And as I kind of started picking this up, as I said, it's sort of anecdotal and there's, not, there's all sorts of research and metrics on suicide bombers few of which I think are really that useful um, but uh, when I started picking this up from people it, it became I, I got more and more interested in it so there was Abu Mujahid who I was just talking about this militant in, in Baghdad uh, he was talking about how he got his group together how, how, his, how he formed this little cell um, and the, there were, they all knew each other and you might as well have been talking about you know, 
kind of a five-a-side football team or something. They, they, they all knew each other from the local coffee shop, obviously. There were some who were relatives. Some actually took their kids to the same school, or, so they knew each other because their kids knew each other. I mean, it was basically, it, just, it was a very good example of how militancy, what, at whatever level, is a, is a social activity like, like any other. Uh, in its essence, in its practice. Now, um, there are other examples. And one thing that really struck me when I started looking at it was how many terrorist attacks, if you look at or militant attacks, whatever, if you look at the violent incidents over the last 10 years, I reckon 99% of them, again, I haven't done the metrics, but certainly a very, very significant proportion occur with local people using local materials to hit local targets. And when I mean local targets, I mean targets that are 15 minutes or maybe at most a couple of hours journey from where they live. So the, the transnational model of terrorism, the 9-11s or the plots to send packages or bring down six transatlantic jets or whatever, are... Um, are really the minority. And the, the vast bulk, again, is, is all working out on a very local dynamic. Um, even 7-7 involved guys coming from Luton and from North, coming from Yorkshire on a train that takes two hours to get to London. Um, and this, incidentally, is not entirely lost on the um, intelligence services, uh, the counter-terrorist community, intelligence community, who over the ten years have shifted from global solutions, if you like, such as profiling, to uh, profiling and hierarchies, which is what they were looking for, organisations and the qualities that make you a militant, have shifted to now not asking who is the militant in terms of those particular characteristics, uh, or even why, um, but how? They're looking at radicalisation as a process rather than as something that you are somehow inclined to be involved or be subject to. Um, and in terms of the organisation, that has now been largely junked and you're looking at mapping networks. So they got to Bin Laden not by working their way up the... Um, working way up the hierarchy, picking off successive people and then getting to the man at the top or putting in a, some kind of mole and he working his way up, which is a traditional model, but by modelling all the various links between people they knew to be involved, drawing up a sort of an enormous chart, but not one that was a classic organogram, but one that was sort of flat. And they're looking at where the nodes were densest, where the connections were, there were the most connections. And, then, and they went for those people there who were actually just low-level couriers. But it was the low-level couriers through which everything flowed, if you like, that took them eventually to Bin Laden. Uh, it took them quite quickly, actually, once they got across the, to Bin Laden. It still took many years. But it was, it was through a, a flat... Uh, Approach rather than the hierarchical approach, and uh, th through a, a meticulous granularity rather than a, a global approach. Another example is MI5, who immediately after 7-7 started rolling out local offices to police stations around the UK to work closely with the police, who obviously have that local knowledge, which is the kind of 
UK internal security equivalent of what Petraeus and the whole counterinsurgency doctrine, new counterinsurgency doctrines were encouraging in Baghdad, for example, which again was all about community, locality, specificity, granularity. Um, so I think the, that shift on the part of the counter-terrorist intelligence community, strategic thinkers within some of the militaries, though it came very late, allowed them to exploit strategic opportunities that were opening up by around then. Um, um, where, where are we? Oh, what, just before I get to where are we now, I think the other people who are well aware of this issue, very well aware of this issue, better than anybody, are the militants themselves. If you look at the history of Al-Qaeda, clearly the idea was to find the global enemy, the far enemy, the US, which would allow the disparate strands, the squabbling, uh, disparate strands of activism that were um, operating in the late 1980s, early 1990s, to be concentrated, focused, brought together uh, and channeled uh, to achieve Al-Qaeda or Bin Laden and al-Dawakhri's aims. Um, that was a clear attempt to move from a local approach, which had been that of the in the 1980s when you had, and 1990s incidentally, when you had an Algerian insurgency, you had an Egyptian insurgency, you had Yemeni groups, you had Chechens doing their thing, you had the Taliban, etc., etc., to unite that and to move it to something else more global. Now, the problem of that, again, is that it means you have this global solution that you're trying to impose locally, and if you look at a lot of the correspondence that's, that's flowing between senior jihadi thinkers, a lot of it is about how do you overcome this? How do you keep the sort of brand uniformity, if you like? How do you keep the focus on the global? How do you bring everybody together to attack the far enemy, the main enemy, while keeping the local relevance? Um, and, and something that Al-Qaeda have had enormous difficulty with and have largely failed to do. So that brings us to sort of where are we now um, uh, I mean, I think um, we are to an extent at the end of a cycle. Um, that may just be false. You know, I'm a news journalist, so I react probably disproportionately to recent events. But it, the death of Bin Laden um, and the lack of a serious, significant attack for many years. Um, and the clearly negligible role played by radical, violent extremism in events in the Middle East earlier this year do, do collectively give me the impression that um, we are at the end of a, of a particular cycle that started with 9-11 and is kind of moving into something else now. Um, obviously we're far too early to say but it does the Arab revolt seem to be taking us in a new direction uh, Al-Qaeda itself as a group is significantly weaker than it was 10 years ago many of the senior people are dead uh, if you look at, you, know, you look at where Al-Qaeda even including affiliates the more active affiliates are currently active you're looking at um, Pakistani tribal zones, 
parts of Yemen, northwest Iraq, uh, a bit of eastern Africa, East Africa, the Sahel um, a little bit, maybe parts of the Maghreb, but only to a, a very limited extent for the moment. Um, none of those locations, um, Yemen, tribal zones, north Nineveh province of Iraq, Somalia, can be considered core strategic uh, locations within the Middle East, the Islamic world more generally. They're marginal locations and they reflect, I think, Al-Qaeda and, and radical extremism's marginality socially, culturally, politically, um, and as I say, geographically. Um, which is why I feel that the, the Al I wouldn't go so far as some have said that Al Qaeda is a sort of now an aberration, or can be seen as an aberration or an anomaly. Um, but it does seem to me that that, that, that that moment of 19, say late 90s, early part of the last decade, when there was a particular conjunction of um, of factors has now passed. It would be very difficult to replace Bin Laden. Uh, it would be very difficult to do 9/11 again. Uh, it would. Be, it's very difficult to imagine the same response to a similar attack. You know, things have moved on. It, it, you even look. I was looking at the videos, the early videos from Bin Laden the other day, and, and they look incredibly dated. I mean, I don't know what Bin Laden would do now, or the new Bin Laden will do, or whoever we may see emerging, what media he's going to use. But that, that image of the older guy in his beard with his sawn-off AK, his parachute, paratrooper-issue Soviet AK, next to him, waving a finger and telling people, particularly the youth, what to do, it just seems to me to be a, a style and a model that would not work now. It just looks very, very... Um, old school, basically, very 90s. Um, the, 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 uh, the, you know, that said, I think, you know, we all said in the first book that, that, that there's this three tripartite division of Al-Qaeda, which I think still holds true. You have the hardcore leadership, you have the networks, you have the ideology. Uh, and that's a simple scheme that I'm always trying to resist, but it's not a, it's a useful one. As I say, leadership in great trouble. Um, Affiliates pretty much independent anyway, uh, and some limited success in some areas, but still very much kind of local and not posing a huge international threat. Ideology, yes, mass, you know, defeated in terms of Al Qaeda's prime aim of radicalising and mobilising tens of millions of people, <coughs> has gone nowhere, failed abjectly. Uh, but what has been left, partly by through the efforts of of Al-Qaeda and others like them, partly through the reaction that they provoked, um, has been a, uh, a social movement, uh, almost cultic uh, ideology, a way of acting, way of thinking, way of viewing the world that is remarkably tenacious and will continue to produce militants or believers, volunteers, whatever you want to call them, um, for the foreseeable future. Um, just very briefly, I'm aware of the time, um, there are a couple of things that I look at in the book that I think are worth mentioning. Um, 
I was talking about how there is still a greater degree of polarisation now than there was 10 years ago, and that's one of the legacies, if you like, of the, the, the conflicts we've seen, the 9-11 wars, whatever you want to call them. Um, not only has there, there been a, a greater degree of polarisation, the middle ground in many societies, I, I've noticed certainly somewhere like Pakistan, which I know well, I used to live there and go back very frequently, has shifted rightwards. So one of the achievements, if you like, of the militants has been to nudge the whole political spectrum towards the more conservative end. And one thing I'm really interested in, and this is, it's a failing of, 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 um, of my newspaper, other newspapers, particularly my newspaper actually, newspaper actually really bad at this, is we still apply this binary model to somewhere like Pakistan, where we have extremists, beardy scary guys basically usually in our pictures in the paper, and moderates who we call moderates, even though nobody locally calls moderates, who are usually secular, elite, often Western educated and speak English. And we, if you, you know, our coverage of the Arab revolts has been very heavily determined by this as well. That's how the, the kind of, that's the representation. What I'm, the people I'm really interested in are the people in the middle. And I, I spent quite a lot of time in Pakistan looking at these people, talking to these people, trying to find out what they think. Spent some time on a university campus uh, in Multan, which is right in the middle of the country. Just before, I was actually, it was just before Benazir Bhutto got killed. Um, and I'd spent some time with Benazir, who I knew from the early, from the late 90s. And then I went off and started talking to all these people. And I was talking to these 18 to 21 year olds, 22 year olds, and they were the sons and daughters of pharmacists, engineers, teachers, um, lower level lawyers, so on and so forth. Um, people who were not the rich, not the wealthy, not the rural, poor, but in the middle, very much middle Pakistan, in the way that there's sort of middle England, there's a France profonde, there's a whole sorts of, diff you know, you have this sort of middle uh, section of the population. And their views were pious, socially conservative, strongly patriotic slash nationalistic, anti-American, anti-Western, anti-Zionist, um, uh, pro-democracy, a uh, whole bag of different values, but, on the, but very much not those that were being seen as moderate by my newspaper or by other commentators. And I think it's those people who we don't represent adequately in the Western media, and I think who will play a very significant role in the, I was going to say aftermath, but it's not really fair, in the evolving situation that has been opened up by the various Arab revolts. Uh, they'll play a role, Afghanistan's a bit different, but it's a similar, similar thing in Kabul when I was there in the summer. The views you'd hear there, uh, Kabul's an odd place, and Afghanistan's an odd place, but there too, um, you hear that. But I did go back up to that little hill that I stood on in 98 this summer and looked down. Um, and Bagram now is a small town, basically, uh, entirely for American servicemen or Western servicemen and women. Um, 
of a population of somewhere between eight and 10,000 with its own, absolutely astonishing, it's huge, with its power, sta power stations, uh, dining facilities for thousands and thousands of people serving three meals a day, gyms, running tracks, educational facilities, uh, fast food restaurants, etc., etc. It's, it's, it's an absolutely huge. Um, but the Taliban are not yet, anyway, back in that little on that little hill where they served me tea and grapes 13 years ago. Not yet, anyway. Well, not today. They weren't when I last checked. They might be by this evening. But you never know. Anyway, thank you for listening. about how Al-Qaeda are both products and agents of globalization and that they're as threatening to local uh, frameworks of, of meaning and organization as anything else. Um, the floor is open for questions, so do... Um, so it sounds like you're not a fan of macro large-scale explanations which, as an IR student, is just the best news ever. But I was wondering what you make of the, the kind of AFPAC idea of it all being one large grouping with the ISI and tribes and so on like that. Thank you. Um, do you mean the label AFPAC, or do you think AFPAC should be considered... The idea that you can't usually think of either on its own, and that you have to cover them all together as one. Yeah. Um... I, I think if you're looking at it from a security dynamic, particularly from a security perspective, then it makes a great deal of sense to see it as one entity, although quite where you draw the line, because I mean, if you're going to look at AFPAC, why not look at AFPAC Ind, AFPAC Ind Ir, uh, adding Iran, AFPAC Ind Ir Turk Uz Taj, <laughs> you know, you could keep going for quite a long time, because it is very much a, a, a regional conflict. Um, on the ISI element, um, which I, I looked at a lot, uh, have looked at a lot, and have followed both the sort of evolution of Western views of whether the, the, you know, the ISI backing of the Taliban or otherwise, um, it's perfectly clear to me that the, the ISI, I mean, smoking guns are few and far between, but there, there's enough evidence to be, and not only is there enough evidence, I mean, the, people in the ISI are fairly upfront about it these days, um, to um, substantiate the idea that the ISI have offered enormous assistance, invaluable assistance, both passive and active, in a, if you like, to the Taliban. And the fact that the Quetta Shura, all, all the ISI needed to do was give them the safe haven. They didn't even need to give them guns, which they have done sort of intermittently, weapons, money, all the rest of it. Um, uh, that's clear. But... Uh, the Taliban remain a Afghan, Pashtun, in part nationalist, reactionary, conservative, rural movement, which they always were, with an overlay of the, the, the global jihadism on top. But, um, so, but, they, but they are, they are at, not just Afghan, but they represent a particular constituency within Afghanistan that was shut out of uh, put it, the Afghan politics post-2001. But 
hunting above their weight yeah, without the, without the Pakistanis, it would be very difficult to see how the Taliban could have survived post-2001 because they got somewhere to go. They, they made a strategic retreat at the end of 2001. And the 2001 campaign, from the Western perspective, was actually quite a well-run campaign. It wasn't very expensive, either in lives or in cash. Uh, it achieved most of its aims. Okay, bin Laden got away, but... Lots of other people didn't. They cleared out the terrorist infrastructure. They deposed the Taliban. Um, that was not a, not a that, that achieved most of its uh, objectives. The critical element was, as we all know, that the Taliban could retreat, regroup, and they did. I mean, I was meeting them in Peshawar in June 2002 in a house uh, where they were explaining to me a pretty classic kind of Maoist guerrilla strategy. Um, and that was the gift of the Pakistanis. Okay, great. Um, is there a question up here? Back to you. Uh, I was at a conference not so long ago on the, on the Swat Valley, and one of the points made was basically the complete lack of any understanding among the British military, let alone the American military of Afghanistan, both anthropo anthropologically and historically. In fact, the point was made that probably the best thing the MOD could have done before they went to Afghanistan is go and read the India office papers of the 1890s in the British Library. Um, the point was being made that terms of duty are so short that actually there's very little understanding. You see it linguistically with the problem of getting Pashto and Dari speakers. Um, and you see it also, I mean, one of the people who made, I'll just finish with this, made a, a real attempt, apparently, to understand the sort of networks and the feudal networks among the tribes in Afghanistan was McChrystal, um, who had apparently in Kandihar in his office an entire wall uh, covered with uh, villages and towns. It was a bit like sort of uh, uh, mind maps uh, showing the relations between different tribes, different villages, different uh, parts of the country in a, in a very micro level. Would you agree with that kind of description? Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I've seen those maps, actually, that McChrystal was using, and he brought in some very, very good people. And, and the Americans, you know, once they got across that's what they needed to do, which they did pretty rapidly by 2005, 2006, mainly it started in Iraq where they started introducing what they called the human terrain system, which was uh, they brought in loads of anthropologists to start working alongside sort of embedded anthropologists with frontline units and um, and that contributed a significant amount and it contributes contributed and contributes a significant amount in Afghanistan it's just it's you know if the strategy is wrong then the tactics don't matter and on a tactical level quite often in Afghanistan I saw it in the summer when I was there the Americans are now doing very useful work, sort of village to village. But because the overarching structure is so weak, it doesn't make any great difference to the strategic situation. As we saw with like, Marja, the village in Helmand, the Americans had to pick, um, take over because the British couldn't handle it. Now, the point about the British is absolutely, is very accurate. I was involved in talking to British units in 0506 before they went out as part of the, the NATO um, expansion in Afghanistan into Helmand and into Kandahar and they did not know anything 
really. They were hugely ignorant. Otherwise, they wouldn't have been bringing people like me in. They would have had their own proper experts. Uh, and the only where I uh, the tourism duty thing, absolutely. Again, I spoke about this last night. Somebody asked me a question. I was at Daunt Books doing, um, and there's no way you can get sufficient understanding of local ground in a six-month six tour of duty, which is what they were doing and still are doing. Uh, and I was on. A, I remember, you know, being on an embed with the Brits in Helmand in 2007, and they, they demonstrated. A, a brilliant, the, the local, they were, you know, they're very good soldiers in terms of just fighting soldiers, but they, I was in a, spent a few days in one of the sort of frontline positions, and they knew every tree, the guys up there, I mean, it was their job, they did it well, they had a name for every tree, they knew all the laybys, they knew who lived in which house, that was a guy in the blue shirt, that was a guy in the red shirt, you know, they had it in that kind of tactical um, detail, they knew brilliantly. When I sat down with the commanding officer a bit later and said, um, you know, Norzai, ever heard of a Norzai? It's kind of huge local tribe, which then break down into sort of infinitesimal subgroups, um, and which were absolutely key to the particular local dynamic in the southeast. Uh, at that stage, they didn't know anything about it. Uh, they now probably would do. In fact, they now definitely would do. But at that stage, they didn't. And the early elements obviously count. Um, and they weren't going to get that knowledge either. In a six-month tour of duty, where they basically came in, each brigadier would come in, set up for two months, do one operation to show that he could do it and show that he was different from his predecessor, and then come and then spend two months basically leaving. And I go back to the point: the Americans again did it much better. They were doing year, 15-month, 18-month tours of duty and sending the same officers back to the same places. So they would rotate in and out of um, the, the Kunar, for example, Korangal, places like that, Paktia, Paktika, in the east. Where you had, so you had these colonels who were going back for their third or even fourth tour in Afghanistan, and um, uh, where they knew local people, some of them even knew local languages. The only thing I differ from is I think the worst thing you could go and do is read the bloody India office papers. Which are, you know, well, you wouldn't go and read the equivalent about France now. And there's this kind of default Orientalist position, basically, where I've heard it a million times. And the other thing, everybody goes and reads bloody Flashman. I mean, please. <laughs> you know. No, I, I, I think, I mean, you know, this is a different discussion, but I think that the, the, the history of British colonial wars is one of the most romanticised, mythologised kind of... It's, it's like British fair play at cricket or something. I mean, they were not... You know, we did not respect local communities or learn about them. We shot lots of them. You know, look at the Mau Mau, how that... The, 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 one thing we did do quite well towards the end was to pick the wars that we pretty much could win which others didn't, notably the French. But, the, but, but I mean, I'm, not, I'm slightly playing devil's advocate, but I, I do honestly think, and I heard this a lot from the you know, British officers in Basra in 2003, being sniffy about the Americans, going, well, you know, the Americans, they're all about force, and they don't win. they've never been a colonial nation. Well, great, you know. Um, <laughs> they don't have our history of, you know, magnificent colonial interventions overseas, like Northern Ireland they kept telling me about. And I'm not joking, they were talking about patrolling in Belfast. 
when they were in, in Basra. And, and you had these brilliant incidents, like, like the, the SAS guys who got themselves, uh, funnily enough, got themselves captured by uh, the heavily infiltrated Basra police in, I think, 05 or 06. Because this four bloke from Hereford, uh, basically, in inverted commas, blacked up. I mean, literally kind of put on a load of dark makeup, local shirt, got a local taxi, and went driving around Basra, not speaking a word of Arabic, obviously, thinking they're never going to get noticed. But imagine a bunch of Iraqis, Iraqi squaddies driving around Manchester or something in a four Cortina. I mean, you know, it's not going to take very long for the local plod to sort of go, mm, that was a bit weird. <laughs> I mean, it's just, and then you speak to their commanding officers, and they're all full of, well, you know, us Brits, and we know, we know, we, we, you know, soft berets, and we say salam alaikum, and this sort of thing, with a heavy northern accent. And, and so, I mean, I, I agree entirely, the, the thrust of what you're saying, I think there's a danger of, of and, and I was, I've actually been very impressed with the Americans who make some ferocious cock ups. But then actually think about it and don't have the colonial baggage and the complacency of talking about Malaya. Yeah. Anyway, sorry, I got excited. More questions. I'll take one from this side this time. Um, I read in um, Carl memoirs of uh, his time in Kabul that um, the diplomatic community was very insular. So they didn't involve the tribal leaders as much as they should have, obviously. How do you see the, how do you see the power struggle uh, spanning out now that we're pulling, um, obviously, troops out slowly? How do I see that? What's sorry? How do, uh, I see how do you the see the power, power struggle between yeah. policymakers panning out between the tribal leaders and foreign diplomatic communities? Well, uh, yeah, I'm a slightly biased because Sir Sherard gave me an absolutely filthy review in the Sunday Times on. Last weekend, but um, uh, I, I mean, I'll give you an example. If you want to, working in Kabul as a reporter, you would just go out, you know, you drive around the city in, as doing what I was doing anyway, in a local taxi um, with a local interpreter if you needed one, not if you didn't. Um, when I arrived once, I did a, one of these kind of dog and pony shows where they fly in reporters and they keep you within the kind of diplomatic, um, uh, di diplomatic bubble, if you like. I instead of what I normally did, which was get out of the airport, you know, get a taxi and drive off into town, uh, we had a three-vehicle armoured... We had to flak jacket up, helmets armoured vehicle to get us to the British Embassy. And then and they sort of rather apologetically, oh, so this is a bit over the top, isn't it? You know, I mean, it's only a ten-minute drive. And they said, well, I'm afraid that's, that's how, you know, uh, diplomats have to, have to get around. Um, uh, and that is how Sir Sherrod and others did get around, and their contact with local... Um, <laughs> other local people with minimal. Another example was the most recent... Um, ambassador who I'd seen after a, a month or so there, this is a year ago, um, and he'd been down to Helmand to sort of see how the troops were getting on when the British were sort of running Helmand, parts of Helmand, he'd been to Lashkagar, and they'd taken him down to the bazaar in Lashkagar, and you can imagine the security that well, they're going to lay on when the British ambassador goes wandering around 
uh, Lashkar. So there were you know, tanks blocking off both ends of the bazaar, a helicopter overhead, all the rest of it. And, uh, and the ambassador said, oh, you know, they seemed friendly. <laughs> I'm sure they did. It's a pretty bad place to look not friendly. And he said, well, about one in three didn't shake my hand. I think, right, so one in three didn't shake your hand when there were, you know, all that going on. Which, yes, yeah, so more seriously, the point every insurgency has recognised that the, that the last thing you want is troops out talking, fraternising with locals, if you like, uh, out learning about the communities, building relationships, and that's what uh, the Taliban and other tactics, particularly in Iraq, was extreme, were extremely successful at doing, was ensuring that Western forces, uh, with a, in a political context where violence was, uh, where, where casualties were extremely difficult to sustain, um, the forces were kept behind treble rows of ramparts and only ever went out, you know, pointing guns at people. So, uh, yes, absolutely, and that was a c critical problem right from the beginning. We could go on about it longer, you could go back to. A lot of it came from how um, the Americans had built bases in the Gulf in the uh, post-1990-91 post Gulf conflict, uh, which were just in Saudi, where they weren't allowed to go out for the obvious reasons. Um, and they basically transplanted that model to Afghanistan and then into Iraq, where it was completely the wrong model. But on the how it pans out now, I mean... Um, uh, they're clear. Obviously, the West and uh, the West just want to get out as soon as, as humanly possible. Um, Karzai is a problem, but one that if we can hang on now another couple of years, 2014, he'll probably go. They'll find someone else. Um, Long-term basing rights for the Americans, obviously critical. That way, they can keep a substantial counter-terrorist presence plus. Uh, uh, plus uh, air cover, uh, mentoring, Af Afghan National Army, critical to the whole thing. Um, all of that is a fairly fragile structure that depends on very large amounts of Western cash to keep upright. But then if you look at the history of Afghanistan, it's not the first time that a leader in Afghanistan has traded off his strategic position to garner support from a major foreign power. That's what they've largely done for 200 years. Um, so it can work. I mean, one example, it's a very interesting one, and lots of discussions about whether it's the right one or not, is Najibullah and what happened when the Russians and Soviets stopped paying the bills. Regime collapsed. Would that happen again? I don't know. Um, probably, but they probably won't stop paying the bills for the moment. It's also worth remembering that the... Taliban have very significant weaknesses as well. Yes, okay, today they've kind of spectacular attack in the middle of Kabul. Um, it may have been Haqqani's people, but either way, the insurgents, I say. But if the Taliban want to mount a serious threat or claim to government, they need to cross the ethnic divide. And more than ever, they now, to me, appear very much constrained by the limits of their own very strong Pashtun nature. Uh, yes, there are some communities, or rather commanders, who have
have come over to the Taliban side, but it's almost always for these kind of micro reasons, as with the guys I started talking about. Uh, yes, in the north, but all those communities, Kunduz and are all uh, Pashtun communities. So the, the Taliban will have to get over that and turn themselves into this sort of national liberation movement. And I, I can't see kind of the Panjshiris ever buying that. So in, in long term, I think they're just going to get a kind of ongoing fudge of everybody's interests rubbing up against each other, nobody really being strong enough to overcome anyone else, a kind of Talibanistan in the south and east, rather like Hezbollah in Lebanon to an extent, um, the north running itself more or less, but rather unstably, and some kind of general compromise in Kabul. But I'm probably wildly wrong. Have been in the past. <laughs> Uh, hi, yeah. Um, I, just listening to this, I find it very uh, weird, to say the least, because um, I've been reading about Afghanistan, and when they came in, they said that they were going to bring in women's rights, and they haven't. They bought parliament. Basically, the Americans bought the warlords and bought parliament, and everybody's in parliament is paid by American money. And the warlords were the problem before the Taliban, and they're the exact same. And they had a whole thing where they said that they were going to have a commission like they had in South Africa uh, for women's rights, so that all the men that, abs that took away women's rights and burnt women and children in schools. And if you were not in the right uh, camp, you can't get education, you can't get hospitals, you can't get local transport. And Maya Joya is the only uh, Afghan, palace, uh, Afghan woman that is standing up for these people. And she is constantly living with debt threats every day. And um, how can you say it's a success? I mean, are you saying this is a success? Sorry. I, I don't think he is saying that it's a success, but it's a very important point about the objectives uh, for why we went in and what has or hasn't been met and what's actually, what challenges have been presented by the process of intervening. Uh, if I said it was a success, I clearly didn't express myself properly um, or clearly. Uh, I don't for a moment think the whole effort in Afghanistan was a success. What I was talking about was the uh, very narrow immediate objectives of the 2001 campaign which were to clear bin Laden and the terrorist infrastructure as it was described out of Afghanistan. Um, the, let, what happened in 2002 and 2003 was that that aim was then broadened very substantially to include a to include a much wider range of objectives. No, I'm not saying they did, but that was the. <laughs> I'm just saying that that's the, they opened up to a whole a much wider range of objectives, um, some of which were. Uh, simplistic, such as removing burqas, which was not going to happen, and some of which were entirely laudable, many of which you've just mentioned, such as having some kind of Truth and Reconciliation Commission or some kind of but justice. Well, the well, they didn't have it, but not to any...
Yes. Well, I, yes, I'm, I mean, I'm not a big fan of the intervention in a, of, of subsequent events. I'm not a big fan of 2001. I, I mean, I saw it. I was there. Um, Sorry. I know, but I, I'm just... The, 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 looking at it dispassionately, those are, very, those are always going to be huge difficulties in trying to implement that, given the lack of political will and the lack of resources that were devoted to that project. Now, we can argue about whether that project was ever one that could have been accomplished, uh, certainly in the timescale that was being envisaged in 2001. Tony Blair, the other week, spoke of how he thought there would be, I quote, a short period of benign conflict which would then lead to a kind of better world. Uh, so, so, but, yeah, of course, it's been an enormous lash up. But can I just say one thing? Not just, not just for, for women and women's rights, uh, which clearly is a very important area that I'm not in any way minimising, but in terms of personal security, not just for women, but for everybody, for example, the, the, there is very little personal security. Now, if you're going to do one thing in reconstructing a nation, then clearly that is a pretty obvious thing to do, is try and ensure an environment where people can farm, go to towns, trade, go to schools, as you rightly point out, without being attacked. Now, that wasn't done. We can discuss why it wasn't done. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm not really talking about home here. It'd be slightly, it'd be, I'd go off the, I'd go off the um, limit, but it's an important point, so thank you. I get the first one actually, but let, let me deal with the second. He summarises it in 500 pages. I'll summarise it in 500 pages. I mean, I can't, you can't summarise it, obviously. I mean. I wouldn't, I wouldn't, I wouldn't dream. I wouldn't dream of. I wouldn't dream of trying to do something. I, I, it was hard enough trying to keep it down to 700 pages, 185,000 words. It's be fair. No, I mean, and I'm certain, I know what you're going for. You want, you want, you want a belligerent US uh, set on the, sub, you know, humiliation division of Islam. That isn't the case. But, so anyway, let me, let me talk, to the, let's talk about the second one rather than try and sum up 10 years. Of, you wouldn't ask the same question about the Napoleonic Wars, so, uh, or the Second World War. Uh, although that would be much easier, actually. Um, the, the, the um, I mean, I think it's been Laden dead. Well, um, let's not. You talk about the authorities. Do you accept the word of Ayman al Dawakri? You're talking about the authorities. Let's leave yeah. uh, leave aside the Americans. I mean, I actually kind of trust yeah. Obama to an extent. But, well, no. But well, apart from the fact that Al Qaeda themselves have made a statement saying that Bin Laden is dead and appointing Ayman al Dawakri, who himself has made a statement talking about their late leader, which. 
Well, now you could say, can I just, let, hold on, hold on, hold on, let, let me finish. You could say, well, it's all fabricated. Well, then, you know, so bus timetables might be fabricated. I don't know. But they're taking the images that we think are fairly reliably sourced that were released. But let me finish, please. You passed. Yeah, okay. So, no. I, well, that's fine. I mean, that's a, I find it deep. I find the, the continuing conspiracy theories, for example, deeply depressing. Deeply depressing. It's one of the things I come up against very often. I come up against it in the Middle East, particularly in Pakistan but, uh, and, uh, and Afghanistan, very, very uh, frequently. Uh, it, I find that in those environments, I have a certain degree of sympathy because you're often talking about people who have been. Uh, subjected to a whole range of intelligence operations or whatever, and therefore you can understand where that's coming from. In the West, I just find it simply depressing that intelligent, educated, uh, well-informed people have to sit around on a, whatever it is, a Tuesday evening discussing bonkers ideas that the CIA and Mossad set up the World Trade Center's uh, uh, demise. So, um, Going back to the nine to Bin Laden, which was your original question, I let's say as a journalist, I think I've got two sources on it. Okay, I've got Obama, and I've got Ayman al Zawahri. Now, as a journalist, I'd run with that story. I've got both sides. <laughs> you know. Um, okay, we'll take a last round of questions. Maybe we'll have three. There's one over there, and then there's one over. So with, now with the, um, I guess, the global focus on mainly debt crisis, economic recession, and you mentioned in sort of your answers the lack of resources and both political will, specifically from the United States, what do you think is the timeline for these 9-11 wars? We know the U.S. troops are set to withdraw by the end of this year, but you know, there's still debate about how many will stay behind. And in Afghanistan, we don't really know um, what is the timeline. So what, what do you foresee happening um, in terms of military presence sure. on the ground in Afghanistan? We leave aside the sort of 9-11 wars framing device, which is a slightly unhappy one. It doesn't always help. But um, I, I think, as I said about Afghanistan, it will continue in one way or another winding down for five to ten years uh, unless there's a sort of radical change and we suddenly see a huge number of people coming back um, uh, sorry a huge number of troops being sent in for you know it's very difficult to say if there was another major spectacular attack that would be a, a significant game changer um, I, I personally think you know, leaving that accepting that eventuality you're looking at uh, an increase in the isolationist America, uh, a Europe that has got much greater problems than worrying about what's going on in the tribal zones of Pakistan, and a UK and a Europe that has learned in a fairly sharp fashion the limits of its capacity to intervene overseas. Um, the, the, I, I, I think the, the, the conflicts we're talking about, if you like, will continue at a fairly low level. You'll find new, there'll be new leaders emerging, there'll be new groups emerging, uh, possibly with new techniques that may empower them for a, particular, for a particular time. Wherever there are the right circumstances for that kind of militancy to thrive, 
and therefore there'll be a reaction to that militancy which will almost certainly involve conflict. Um, that will go on for a considerable period. I mean, I always say that Al-Qaeda itself is kind of, the, the organization may be in great difficulties, but remember that its project was, as I said, to pull everything together, to pull existing strands of radical Islamic activism together. Those strands have long uh, histories, long and complex histories in individual countries, individual communities, which long predate, uh, not even just Al-Qaeda, but long predate, but take the you know, Algerian or the Al-Qaeda in the Maghreb at the moment, which is largely Algerian. Now, Algerian, Ali knows much better than I, Algerian militancy doesn't just go back to uh, the days of bin Laden or the 1990s and the violence in the 1990s. It goes back to the coming of the French in the 19th century and well beyond that in terms of if you look at successive waves of revivalist Islam with a strong activist, often violent element, you can keep going back centuries. So I think we're looking at a much broader phenomenon which will continue to generate conflict and indeed headlines for the foreseeable future. They just won't be of the apocalyptic nature of the ones we saw around 2001, 2002, 2003, 2004. Does that help at all? Okay, we'll take a question here and then straight afterwards. Uh, I'm from Pakistan myself and I'm deeply distressed by the, um, the violence that's been going on inside the country for the last few years. Now, for the most part, this violence began after um, the U.S. invaded Afghanistan following 9-11. And I've for a long time believed that this violence will not subside until they leave Afghanistan. Now, for a long time, I also believed that they wouldn't leave until violence was brought under control. So there was, to me, kind of a self-perpetuating cycle there. But now, for reasons which may have nothing to do with Americans will be pulling out. So I'd like to ask you your thoughts on how do you see it ending and what do you think has been achieved through this uh, decade in terms of lasting peace? Because personally I see a lot of um, yeah. tension that's going to continue to simmer underneath. It's a good, good one to end on, Pat. Um, you know, the, the, the overall... Um, you, you certainly can't speak of anybody winning. Okay? And Pakistan's a very useful place to sort of end with in terms of Pakistan being one of the great losers of the last decade. Uh, you can't speak of anybody winning. Some have lost more heavily than others, perhaps. Um, I did a, in the book, I do a, an exercise of trying to work out how many people have actually been killed in these conflicts, 9 11 wars. And we're looking at around counting. Western militaries, local militaries, local police forces, other security forces, uh, militants themselves, civilians, uh, clearly. You're looking at around 250,000, I reckon. I mean, it's very rough, but a quarter of a million people with probably double as many or three times as many wounded, uh, maimed off into life. Uh, which is an enormous cost, uh, a cost that has been disproportionately borne by uh, Iraq, Afghanistan and um, Pakistan largely. Um, the, the, as I say, the, the Al-Qaeda Al have failed in their key objectives um, and are currently weaker than they ever, hoped, they ever thought they would be in 
certainly where they, they thought would be the result of the strategy they were pursuing. Um, and if Western government's primary role is to effectively ensure the security of their populations, they have largely done it, but at, as we all know, tremendous cost, both domestically in terms of civil liberties, in terms of money, in terms of lives, and also clearly externally, where the vast portion of casualties and damage has been done. Um, the other interesting thing about Pakistan is, as you say, it, it, it's not just since 2001. I mean, you could go back with Pakistan as Pakistan being the great victim of the 80s too, and the war uh, against the Soviets, where the, you know, the, the, the backwash was not, yeah, okay, it may have been felt in Washington on, 9th, uh, on September 11th, 2001, um, but it was felt in Pakistan in a much greater way, much earlier. And the problems you're referring to, in many ways, stem from that era. Uh, so Pakistan has had the very sad uh, task, effectively, or finds itself being the victim of not just the Cold War in a very significant way, uh, but getting the worst of the post-Cold War as well. And you know, I, I feel deep affection for Pakistan. I love going there. Um, many friends there and the only thing that gives me any really encouragement is that Pakistan has this extraordinary capacity to take make, take blows that would destroy many states death of its most assassination of its most uh, senior uh, or best known but highest profile leader uh, coup in the last 10 years alone, I'm thinking earthquake, floods, economic crash after economic boom, civil wars internally being used, instrumentalised by major powers, so on and so forth, uh, its own internal problems. But it still somehow keeps going. And people have been forecasting the implosion or explosion of Pakistan since 1947, indeed before, uh, saying it would never be a viable state. And somehow it does seem to to hold together and the worst of the predictions never seem to come to pass, which is in a slightly dark way, uh, hopeful. Dark hope, we'll take that. Um, <laughs> um, I'm sorry to all of you that wanted to ask questions. Um, there will be a book signing afterwards taking place. and. We'll be expecting a tweet from Jason summarising everything. Yeah, yeah. It's, 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 it's 140 characters for 10 years. Of Absolutely. <laughs> um, thank you all for coming out to the LSC tonight, and please join me in thanking our speaker.